Good morning, everyone. Morning. Trying to match Phil's energy this morning, but uh, so glad that you are here with us this morning. We are getting into a new series in the book of Nehemiah, and this is actually a continuation of a series that we did almost exactly a year ago, and it was actually the first series that I ever preached all the way through, and I think it's super fun because we are packing our way through some pretty cool narrative, and if you want to get filled in on some of the background on the book of Nehemiah, I think there's two really great ways that you could do that. You could go ahead and read through that book of the Bible during the week on your own time. It's really, as far as books of the Bible go, it's not all that long. It is 13 chapters. Another way that you could maybe get yourself up to speed is taking advantage of our Bridgewater podcast. So you could go to the Bridgewater app, go to the podcast for any of our campuses, really. It doesn't have to be Tunkhannock, and you could listen to the first few messages in this series in Nehemiah. But this morning, we are just jumping right into the middle of the book, and I'm pretty excited about that because even though... The book of Nehemiah is about events that took place more than 2,000 years ago. I think there's some similarities between what the Israelites were experiencing back in their day and even what we're experiencing today. And I think one of the biggest similarities is we could all say that things could be better. I mean, think about our nation and just all the division that we have right now. And I just remember thinking over the last few years, I just look back even further and just think like, wow, things were a lot better back then. And I I have this hope for the future that things could be better. Or even in our communities, things could be better just in the way that we talk with other people or the way that we deal with things that we don't necessarily agree on. I think things could be better in our families, in our relationships, like maybe you got in a fight with somebody in your family yesterday or even this morning right before coming to church and things could be a little bit better. Or that person in your family who is dear to your heart and your greatest desire is just for that person to come to a relationship with Jesus and if they would just follow after Jesus, then things could be better. Or in your personal life, whether it's... You feel like you're not the person that you want to be, and so you want to be better, or you're going through some really hard things right now, and you want things to be better. And maybe we are all in that boat this morning. So what does it take to see a change in our nation, to see a change in our communities, in our families, and even in our personal lives? And so that's the question that we'll be answering this morning from the book of Nehemiah. And I think that before we get into it, it'll be helpful to cover just some of the background. Because like I said, we are just jumping right into the middle of this book. So let's talk about Nehemiah. Because if the book is named after this guy, he's probably a pretty important character. And so Nehemiah was a guy who was living in the land of Persia. He is an Israelite, but he ended up in Persia because uh, like 90-something years before his time in this moment, the nation of Israel was conquered by the Babylonians. The Israelites were rebelling against God, so God raised up the Babylonians. 
They conquered Israel, they destroyed Jerusalem, and they carried a lot of people captive back to Babylon. And then after 70 years of living in exile, the people were free to go back to their homeland. And so some of the people went back to Jerusalem, and other people, they had a pretty established life already, and so they just kept on doing what they were doing. And Nehemiah was one of those guys who just stayed back because he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. A cupbearer is a pretty prominent position. You're basically second in command. You don't just deliver a cup. You even have a place of influence with the king. But things kind of changed for Nehemiah when his brother came to visit. And Nehemiah asked his brother some questions about the homeland. He's like, hey, how are things going in Jerusalem? And he was really discouraged to hear from his brother that Jerusalem was still a wreck. All the way back from the time that the Babylonians invaded Israel, they just ransacked Jerusalem. Like the walls were destroyed, just in heaps of rubble. The gates were burned. And it just stayed that way for almost a hundred years. The people really didn't do anything about it. And so it was just a disgrace to the people. And that really weighed on Nehemiah's heart. And so he went to the king and he asked the king to take a leave of absence to go back to his homeland and to lead the people to rebuild these walls. And it's so crazy that the king actually gave him this leave of absence and even gave him materials to rebuild the walls. And that was just totally a God thing. And so Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. He rallies together all the people and they rebuild the walls and he makes... Israel a better place and even becomes the governor of Jerusalem in that whole process. So that's Nehemiah. Now I'll fill you in a little bit on Israel at this point. Now Israel, the nation of Israel, is a wreck. They have just been so off track in following after God, and that is what landed them in this mess to begin with. And so if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, and in verse, last part of verse 6, it just tells us a little bit about where the nation of Israel is at as a whole. And this is Nehemiah praying to God. And he's kind of like giving a history of Israel and where Israel's at in his prayer to God. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled, if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen for my name. So at this time, Israel was in a conditional covenant with God. That means that if they follow after God and obey his commandments, then God will bless them, they'll live in the land, and things will be great. But then if they rebel against God, God said that he would send in a nation to defeat them and carry them away into exile. And that's exactly what happened when the Babylonians came in and carried the people away into exile. So that's that's kind of the bad news. But the hope 
for Israel is that if they turn back to God, if they desire to worship him, then God will bring them back out of exile and bring them back to their homeland. If they would just turn to God, things would be so much better. I think that if we want to see a change in our nation, in our community, in our families, even in our personal lives, it can be so easy just to focus on what we think other people should be doing. So we kind of tell ourselves in our minds, like, if only they would fill in the blank. But the reality is that we can't control other people's actions. We can't really force a change in politics and relationships and other people's lives. And so if you really want to see a change, I think instead of focusing on other people, what we all need to do is to start with ourselves. And I think this really should be encouraging to us to know that Like, all right, we can't control other people, but if we can take seriously what God says in his word and apply it to our lives, that I think it really does make a difference, not only in our lives, but in the lives of people around us. So we're going to get into the main passage for this morning, and that is Nehemiah chapter 8. If you have a copy of God's word, you can go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, and we'll also have it up here on the screen we are going to cover pretty much an entire chapter this morning. So hang tight. At this point, Nehemiah has finished building the walls, and they've moved a lot of people who are living outside of the city of Jerusalem into the city of Jerusalem, and so the city is more populated now. And Nehemiah has built up this credibility with the people. I mean, he's proven himself to be a leader. He's helped them rebuild the wall. He's helped them with a lot of social issues. And so now he has this opportunity to speak into their lives and to point them to God. And Nehemiah takes advantage of this opportunity and he just uses God's word to point people to God and to show them some of the changes that they need to make in their lives. So let's go ahead and read just the tail end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. So if you were looking at the screen, you probably noticed that I had a couple words in yellow when it said the seventh month. Now that's, I think, a significant detail, but I'll connect the dots on that one later. So you can just tuck that back in your minds, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But what blows my mind about this scenario is that really we have this teacher who stands up on a platform 
and he reads the word of God from morning until noon. Now, can you imagine sitting through a church service that long and actually like attentively listening? And there's, a, there's whole categories of jokes in cartoons about pastors who preach way too long. Uh, this is one that I've seen recently. Maybe you'll feel like that at the end of even this morning's message. But really, what Ezra did is he opened up God's word, I think right to the beginning, to Genesis, and just read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like the books or the law of Moses really refers to the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And so they just started working their way through. And I I don't think it was just reading, and I don't know exactly what it was like if it included preaching or even more like a small group discussion, but there was a whole team of people there who were explaining what they were reading from God's word to the whole crowd of people. And so that's what we see in verse 7 here. It says, the Levites, and we're going to get into a list of the names, so I'm going to Read them fast and with confidence. We're going to make our way through. <laughs> Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akob, Sherebethani, Shodiah, Maseah, Keltiah, Azariah, Josabad, Hananah, and Peliah. Instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. And they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And so the Levites are the ones who are on this team of people explaining what the Bible is really saying. And that's their role because all the priests and temple workers come from the tribe of Levi. God had set them aside for that work. But what's, what we learn from these verses is just how off track the people of Israel are. Like the first five books of the Bible it's all about Israel's history from the creation of the world to then how God formed a nation from the descendants of Abraham and how they lived in Egypt and then God carried them out of Egypt into the wilderness and he provided for their needs and then God made a covenant with them. Out of all the people in the world, God chose to work through the nation of Israel and he blessed them and they were his people. But the people during Nehemiah's day, they needed help understanding their very own history. And they were only a few hundred years removed from the time that these events took place and were recorded in God's word. And so probably some of their great, 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 great grandfathers were in the family trees in these books of the Bible that are being read. And they, they just didn't even know. But when they understood the word of God, it made a really big impact on them. So let's look down at verse 9. It says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, All this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed the people, saying, 
Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And so when, when the people of Israel understood their history, when they understood what God wanted for their lives and how God wanted them to live, these guys were really, really sad because they're looking at what God wants for their lives and how they've been living all along. And there was a really big disconnect there because they really didn't have a perfect record. They look back and just see example after example of disobedience in their lives. And they were feeling pretty guilty about it. But Nehemiah and Ezra, they didn't just keep beating the people over the head with God's word and trying to make them feel guilty about it. Instead, they're basically saying, hey, you know what? The past is in the past. Like, you can't go back and change the past. But it's good to recognize that what you were doing before, all right, that's not right. But today, today is a turning point. And let's celebrate this turning point in our lives. Let's lean into the strength of God. The, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the book of Nehemiah, it was written a whole long time ago. But I think there's some things in this book that are written really to be helpful to us that we need to hear in our own lives. And maybe you've recently become a Christian and there's some things in your past that you're kind of haunted by, regrets and bad decisions, and you're just living in guilt from that. Or even if you've been a Christian for a long time, it doesn't mean that your sinful habits go away and that walking the Christian walk becomes easy. And so maybe there's some choices that you've made recently and you know it doesn't honor God and you're just feeling so guilty because of that. And I just want to say that the hope that we have is that if we confess our sins to God, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't think that God wants us to live in the past or to be weighed down with our guilt. The past is in the past. And God's forgiveness covers our past when we confess our sin to God. And he gives us strength in the present and for the future. And one of my favorite verses in this whole passage is when he says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I, I think that this joy can come from knowing that God is loving, that he's compassionate, that he's merciful, and that he is gracious. And that when we confess our sin to God and when we turn to him in repentance, that he doesn't keep holding our sins and our wrongdoings over our heads, but he gives us a fresh start and he gives us strength to live in the way that he wants us to live. And for the people of Israel, what they were reading from the word of God, it didn't just strike a chord with them emotionally, Sometimes we could hear a message and it makes you happy or it makes you sad. But if you don't do anything about it, if it doesn't lead you to action, what does it really do in your lives? And for, for these people, it really did make a difference in their lives. Let's go ahead and look at verse 13. 
It says, on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families along with the priests and the the Levites gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So remember in the beginning, I said that the seventh month was significant. Well, the seventh month is significant because they're, they're finally, they're reading through the Bible and they get to this place in Leviticus and they read that on the seventh month that they're supposed to have this festival where they live in these little shelters to remember that God had brought their ancestors out of Egypt. And if they're looking at their calendars, it is the seventh month of the year. And so this is something that God has called them to do, and they were not planning at all to do that. And so what they read in Leviticus uh, chapter 23 was this. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. And then if I skip over to verse 41, this is the instruction for the festival. God says, celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I, the Lord, am your God. And so an ordinance is really just an action that has a spiritual meaning. And so some examples of ordinances in the New Testament would be like baptism, Baptism is just an action that has a spiritual meaning. And so when you're dunked under the water, it's kind of a picture of being buried, just like Jesus was buried and put in a grave. And when you come out of the water, it's a picture of being raised to new life, just like Jesus didn't stay buried in that grave, but he rose to new life. And that's the hope of anybody who has placed their faith in Jesus, is that they too will be raised to new life. Another ordinance in the New Testament church is communion. And when we take communion, we have a little wafer that represents bread. And that bread is a picture of the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross when he died for our sins. And we drink juice, and that juice is a picture of the blood of Jesus that was spilled out for us so that we can have forgiveness from God. And so those... Things aren't like super mystical or give us extra grace or anything, but it's just an action that has a spiritual picture to it, and it's all for the purpose of remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so for the Israelite people, they had this ordinance of building these little huts out of branches, and it's basically like a week-long camping trip where they're living in these huts to remember that God had brought them out of the land of Egypt and had provided for them in the wilderness. And so they get to this part in Leviticus and they read that this is an ordinance 
that is supposed to be practiced by future generations in Israel. Like it wasn't just for the original people who came out of Egypt and lived in the wilderness. This was for their kids and their grandkids and their grandkids to remember what God had done in their history. And so when they read this, they were moved to obedience. In verse 16, it says, So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs and in their courtyards and in the courtyards of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. And the whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. And day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So there is a big gap in their history of taking this seriously. It says they hadn't celebrated like that since the days of Joshua. Well, the days of Joshua were a few hundred years before this time. And so they had gone that long without really living in obedience to God. But it says that their obedience wasn't just an obligation or a duty or something they had to do, but they obeyed God with great joy when they realized what God wanted for their lives. And basically, there was a revival among the people of Israel. A revival is really just a mass number of people turning to God and living the way that God wants them to live. So what does all of this mean for us today? Well, I think that we can be reminded that God's ways are always best. And so when we live in the way that God wants us to live, that's when we can see a change in our lives, and I think that's when we can see a change in the lives of others. I mean, let's just dream big for a minute. Like, imagine our nation of people, like, loving each other the way that Jesus would want us to love each other. Imagine if racism wasn't a thing, if politics were not so divisive. Imagine in our communities, if everybody in our communities was on fire for Jesus. Like if all the Bible-believing churches in Tunkhannock were just packed out on Sunday mornings with people worshiping God's God. Imagine in our families for your kids to have a relationship with Jesus and their kids have uh, kids who have a relationship with Jesus and their grandkids have Jesus followers and just having generations and generations of families who are following after Jesus and even in our personal lives. I think it would be totally awesome. And I think that we can dream big, but really, if we take a few steps back, it all starts with us. Like, what are we going to do? What is our responsibility? And my hope for us is that, that our passion will spread to others and that we can help other people know God and maybe we can be like Ezra and the Levites, the people who are explaining the word of God to others, who maybe they just had a few questions, or maybe they just straight up didn't know anything about God. And I love hearing stories about uh, Christians who talk about their faith journey and talk about how 
an older Christian or somebody else just came alongside them and to help them understand God and to grow in their relationship with God. And that's what discipleship is. And I don't think it has to be in a formal setting like a small group or a Bible study or anything like that. It's just coming alongside people in daily life and talking about God. A couple of my favorite questions to center the conversation around God is just to ask somebody, like, what has God been doing in your life lately? Or what has God been teaching you? And so that's great to to help other Christians grow in their relationship with God, but even to help unbelievers and them come to faith in Jesus. I wish I could give you a story of like how I'm just nailing this, but I moved to Tunkhannock in January, and since then I've gotten to know my neighbors. I have some really great neighbors. I've talked to them a few times, and all along I've been thinking like, all right, I want to invite my neighbors over for dinner, invite them to church, just build a great relationship with them, talk to them about Jesus, and life gets busy. Like my calendar's filled out, and I'm like, all right, here's just a few days that I could do that. And then I've got house projects, and I'm like, I can't invite somebody over when my floor is ripped up in the house. And so all of these excuses. And then this week, I got a phone call from one of my neighbors telling me that my other neighbor was taken to the hospital in a bunch of ambulance, and that she has this brain tumor, the same kind of brain tumor that was fatal for her mother. And so they're like, bringing in the family because they don't know, like, if this is her last moments. And I just remember thinking, like, wow. I always thought I had tomorrow to talk to her about Jesus. Like, it's always been so inconvenient to invite her to church. But what if that later never comes? And so that's something that I've just been thinking about lately, like that sense of urgency and just talking to other people about Jesus. And I'm sure that's that for all of us, we could all identify that person in our life where we have good intentions, where we want to talk to them about Jesus, we want to invite them to church, and when maybe we're just thinking, I'll do that later. Uh, the, the other takeaway from this passage is to help others, or not help others, to obey God with great joy and This passage, I think, gives us a pretty good example of Bible study. I mean, it starts off with, open up the Word of God, they read the Word of God, and then they seek to understand the meaning of what God's Word is saying, and then that leads to application and actually living it out. And it may be a tricky step for some of us, is figuring out the meaning of what the Bible says. That's the step called interpretation, and... It can be a little bit intimidating, but you don't have to go to Bible college to be able to understand the meaning of Scripture. And so I just wanted to give all of us just a few pointers for when we do our own Bible reading to understand better what the Bible is saying. Just a few questions that we can ask ourselves and then answer in our Bible studying. So one of the questions we can ask ourselves is, all right, who is this written to? Because the Bible isn't just one book written from cover to cover. It's really a collection of 66 books written to all different people under different circumstances. So the Old Testament is really written 
to the nation of Israel. Whereas in the New Testament, you have some books that are written to churches, other books that are written to individuals. And so it's really helpful for us when we read the Bible to ask ourselves, all right, who is this intended for? Because, I mean, if we're reading in the Old Testament, there's commands like sacrifice a sheep so that you can have forgiveness of your sins. Well, we're not living under the Old Testament anymore. And Jesus has sacrificed himself on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of our sins. And so we don't have to do some of the things that the Old Testament talks about and just uh, understanding some things like that. And the second thing that we should ask ourselves is, what is the author trying to say in this passage? Because we shouldn't just want to make a verse mean whatever it is that we want it to mean. We should think about what is what is the writer trying to tell us? What is God saying through this passage? And, and that can be super helpful because where some people go wrong is they want a verse to mean one thing and so they can just twist it to however they want. I mean, maybe you've seen that on Facebook where somebody wants to like support an agenda or something. And so we all just have to, in our own understanding of Scripture and understanding how other people are using Scripture, just go back to, what is the author trying to say? And you can use surrounding verses and to make sure that it fits up with what the immediate verses say and also what all the rest of the Bible says to make sure that everything else lines up. And then two helpful questions, I think, when reading the Bible is just to ask ourselves, all right, what is this passage saying about me? And what is this passage telling me about God? And you can apply that to any passage that you read in the Bible to learn something about yourself and to learn about God. And my hope for all of us is that we would see that we need God's word in our lives, that any, any change that we're going to see in our personal lives in the, change, in the lives of other people really should be rooted in God's word. And my hope for us is that we don't just read God's word just to kind of like check it off of our list of Christian duties, or we don't just read God's word to fill our minds with all kinds of information. My hope is that we can just put into practice what God wants for us in our lives. And so my encouragement for you is if you already have a great routine of reading the Bible throughout the week, is to keep up the good work and maybe just write down one thought every time you read your Bible about how you can apply that to your life. And some of you, maybe you don't really read the Bible throughout the week and you don't know where to start. We have this really helpful resource right here at our Welcome Center for free. And this is a devotional for the month of July. And then next month, we're going to have a devotional for the month of August. And so you can continually uh, get these. And really what it does is it gives you a little bit of... Um, comments or descriptions of what you read, the Bible passage, and then it asks you some of the questions to help you understand what you read, like, so what, now what, then what, like, how can we live this out in our lives so that we're not just reading the Bible for information or to check it off our list, but if we want things to be better in our lives and the lives around us, we need God. We cannot do that in our own strength or in our own ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
I thank you that you have given us your word, that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword, and that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. And God, we need your word to be a magnifying glass in our life, to expose where we're really at in our relationship with you and how we treat others. God, we need your word as a roadmap for life, to know the way that um, you want us to live, and we know that your ways are best. And help us to be people who just uh, take responsibility for our walk with you and that we just see that any change that we want to see in this world, it needs to start with us. And so give us the humility to recognize that. And I ask that you would be our strength. And no matter where it is that we're at, no matter what baggage we have in our lives, God, help us to remember that your joy is our strength. Help us to reflect on your mercy and your grace and your compassion, that we would not be driven to walk the Christian life just out of Christian duty, but that we would just be passionate about who you are and what you have done in our lives because you have given us far more than we even deserve. I just thank you for all of that and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.